You are back with The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. This is Catherine Cruz. Police reform is at the top of the national agenda, and in a slightly different way, it's also a focus here in Hawaii. We have two interviews on that topic this morning, one with Police Chief Susan Ballard and another with Malcolm Lutu, the head of SHOPO, the State of Hawaii Organization of Police Officers. Friday afternoon, Chief Ballard spoke with our news director, Bill Dorman. He started out asking about recent events elsewhere in the country involving the police and their impact here in Hawaii. Chief Ballard, you've condemned the killing of George Floyd and the actions around that. When you see what's going on nationally with protests and calls for defunding police departments, what's your gut reaction? You know, I think it's, uh, to me, it's a a knee-jerk reaction. You know, defunding it isn't as bad as disbanding the police, but, you know, with the defunding, um, it's, you know, taking money away from the police departments and giving them to other agencies who, one, I mean, especially here in Hawaii, uh, you know, while the, like I said before, like the, um, the social workers do an awesome job, there's just not enough of them to do the work that the police officers do. Um, so I would suggest that instead of defunding the police, we should refund all the uh, social agencies so that they can uh, continue and to work with us side by side uh, with the homeless and mentally ill, um, you know, juveniles, the status offense folks, um, you know, and then because I think us working together as a team is going to be a lot more viable than us doing it individually. And one of the things that we're actually just formed a committee on is that we do are going to be reaching out to UH and several of the social service agencies to set up a pilot program where uh, they will be riding with our police officer and uh, responding to cases where we need uh, some de-escalation, whether it's from mental illness, whether it's from domestic violence, um, or just you know dealing with the homeless. Chief, you used to run the training division at HPD. Do, do officers get enough training on, for example, dealing with people with mental health issues? Um, When I was at training, we did have some, but we have in the past, I think, two years, we've really uh, ramped up the training. Uh, We have the uh, special training for our crisis intervention teams. We have mental health first aid. Um, And even when we were at, uh, when I was at the training, um, you know, as far as de-escalation, you know, the the recruits learn it from the day they come in to all the way through, through scenario-based types of uh, training uh, to uh, classroom types of training. So, I mean, there never can be enough. I mean, anything more, we're even looking at getting a a, a use of force simulator for the main station as well as the training academy so that we can try and have the officers come through on a much more regular basis so that we can uh, get them more involved in this de-escalation of force. Do you see a need for reform at the Honolulu Police Department? And and if so, what does that reform look like? You know, um, as far as, you know, reform specifically, um, you know, we can always, I mean, when you take a look at the, the eight can't wait, we can, we, we, for all of those areas, we actually comply. Um, you know, is what we're looking at now with the use of force policy and the temporary halting of the um, vascular neck restraint, um, those are things that I think that we do really need to seriously take a look at to make sure that what we're doing um, is, is relevant for these dates, for the uh, time that we're currently in. Um, you know, training is always something that we need more of, but as far as overall um, reform, you know, we are so, I, I really think that we're so far ahead of the mainland, and I think what's happening on the mainland is it might not be the larger police departments. I'm sure there are some issues, obviously Minneapolis is an example, but um you know, a lot of, I mean, there's like 18,000, I think, different uh, types of, of police departments, and the majority of them are just small police departments that may not have money for, like, body-worn cameras or money for uh, tasers or things like that, you know, for intermediate uses of force. So I think, you know, it, it, a lot of it falls back on these smaller police departments, you know, for reform, um, you know, as well as larger ones. But from what I've seen, I really think that we are uh, pretty close to being a very proactive uh, police department. 
You know, some of the national discussion now includes calls for more transparency. And are you willing, in, in your case, to make public information on disciplinary actions and investigations against HPD officers who've been suspended? Well, I think um, I, in the, since I've been chief for the last two and a half years anyway, uh, we have tried on at least three different occasions to um, you know, put out information regarding disciplinary actions for uh, some of our officers, um, and they've all been blocked. Uh, you know, either a um, lawsuit or a, an injunction was filed against me um, for releasing them, and all that, all that is still pending in court. So, you know, at this point in time, you know, we're, because we're waiting for a resolution of these cases, we are in a holding pattern as far as being able to. But of course, if the federal government and or the state uh, legislature changes that, then we'll follow, you know, whatever the law is at that time. And there is, as you know, bill before the legislature, Bill 285, that would require disclosure of names in the release of misconduct records for suspended officers. Do you support Bill 285? I do and I don't. And the reason I say that is that because, you know, our officers sometimes are suspended for things that nobody else would ever have to deal with for, like, the length of their hair or overdrawing gas or not turning in their mileage receipt. You know, small things like that that, uh, you know, officers can be suspended for or disciplined for that no one else can. And I really don't think that that's something, um, you know, I mean, I can see like use of force and, um, you know, uh, you know, those types of things like that, but not, you know, the smaller uh, things that are more procedural as far as HPD is concerned. But if there are smaller procedural items like that, don't you think the public would understand that as well and take that in stride? You know, I, I, I don't, you know, what from what, what, what we're seeing now um, in, the, in the world, I'm not sure if, or if they would call, you know, I would hope that they would, at least here in Hawaii, I think that they would be. But, you know, just for the officers, um, names out there for something that's that small, you know, might be a bit devastating for them. You know, another part of the discussion that's going on nationally when it comes to police departments is the the role of police unions. Do you feel the the state of Hawaii Organization of Police Officers, SHOPO, does that have a disproportionate level of influence on policy? No. not for HPD policy. We do have, we call it meet and confer. So anytime a policy is changed or a new policy, <coughs> excuse me, uh, we have a meet and confer with the union. And that's what it is, it's meet and confer. It is not meet and agree. So, you know, they, we listen to their side. Um, and then, of course, obviously, you know, they may have a point of view that we haven't considered. So obviously we will make sure that we take that into consideration when we uh, do the policy. But for having, uh, you know, undue uh, influence, I would say no. Moving to job vacancies, how many open positions do you have at HPD and what areas are they in? Um, unfortunately, uh, we have, we're up to about 315 vacancies for our, just for our sworn side. Um, and, you know, they range from lieutenants, detectives, um, and, you know, just regular foot officers. And, you know, just mostly patrol, obviously, because that's where the majority of our, uh, you know, sworn officers are assigned. And how's it going in terms of staffing and recruitment for you these days? You know, we're doing really good so far, knock on wood, for um, recruitment. Uh, you know, we've changed the way that we do recruitment. It's continuous. Um, and so we're, our classes before, when I first came in, was like 20, 25, and now we're starting classes with like 50, 55. So we're just now starting to realize larger graduating classes. And on top of that, you know, the mayor was able to uh, support us with our uh, cadet program, or that's what we call it. It's technically, I mean, it's um, uh, police service officers is what, what it's called, but we just call it cadet. So we're trying to get officers. So we've got, you know, like up to 300 positions that are full-time, that people can come and join the cadet program. There's no enforcement, but we start training you and teaching you about the police department to prepare you for 
the recruit class when you become 21 or when you're ready to make that step. So it can be people of any age. If you're ready to change your careers to a more stable and a very satisfying career, you could come and do cadet uh, training uh, for a limited amount of time, I've forgotten limited term uh, uh, position. You would need to uh, uh, transfer into a recruit class. I did just want to get one final question in. You, you took over as chief of police on November 1st, 2017, under very challenging circumstances. Your evaluation for 2019 was released a couple of weeks ago, a positive one, and it noted that you've made significant progress in changing the culture at HPD, but you may not be completely there yet, was the phrase the commission used. What comes next in that area? Um... You know, I think just, uh, you know, I, I don't know um, the specifics as far as, you know, what their thought process is on that. Uh, I, you know, and I think that within HPD, and this is just my take on it, is that, you know, we're never going to be perfect. I mean, we can strive for perfection, but our officers are human beings, and so they are going to make mistakes. But, you know, by reviewing our policies and making sure that they get the training they need, um, you know, like our uh, – um, our crisis intervention training so that, you know, they don't have to use force on mentally ill people. They've got tools to work with them. So I think all those types of things come into play so that we can, you know, I mean, our ultimate goal would be that we would never have to, you know, use force on anybody. I mean, we'd love not to have to arrest anybody. I mean, that would be a, you know, that would be a perfect world, but unfortunately we're afraid that may never happen. Um, so I think it's just, you know, just a, trying to attain the uh, perfection, um, and we can always do better. Uh, you know, we never can sit back and say, you know, we've done enough, um, but, I, you know, we, we always have to move forward by looking at being creative, doing new programs, um, and, and doing things a new way instead of always doing it the way that we used to do it before. Try something different. Don't be afraid. Chief Ballard, thanks very much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you so much. Take care. That was Honolulu Police Chief Susan Ballard talking with HPR News Director Bill Dorman. It was an interview uh, recorded Friday afternoon. At this hour, SHOPO officials are meeting with House Speaker Scott Psyche about proposed legislation addressing the current secrecy over misconduct cases. We had a conversation with SHOPO head Malcolm Lutu this morning around the principles of HPD, integrity, respect, and fairness. He defended the job of officers, which he called honorable. Lutu has been on the force for 31 years and currently works third watch as a sergeant in the Waikiki District. We asked him about the recent call across the country to defund police budgets. I think it's ridiculous. We're the ones out there, even with a crisis like this with COVID-19, we're the only ones, well, we're one of the first responders out there continuing to work, continuing to keep our community safe. So what are you going to do by defunding us and bringing our staffing lower than what it is now with almost 300 or over 300 short? We're already working as hard as we can. And with, by defunding us and directing money you know, elsewhere, you're going to have a problem even once we get back to the new normal, so to speak. Well, the chief seems to support, rather than defunding, having taxpayers put more money towards social services. I think it should be, but I don't think they should take the money away from our police budget. They should create something or find monies otherwise. We do need some social services to help our the homeless and everything else that's going on that we, we are dealing with that we never had to deal with before when we first when I first joined the department. It is out of hand. There's a push for more transparency. There is a bill at the legislature that some hope will get off the ground that calls for more transparency when it comes to disciplining officers, that the public has a right to know what's involved here. How it stands now, the public record-wise, 
our our names, if we are fired after we grieve, uh, go through the grievance process and fail, that is public record. If the officer is arrested, that is public record. So, you know what what they're asking for in this bill any is any discipline, and not a majority of our discipline are administrative. So it's basically us making mistakes at work administratively, like turning in late reports, like the chief said, you know, messing up on our mileage slips with the guys that, you know, the motorized officers, or even like coming late to work. We have discipline and, you know, a lot of administrative um, rules that the officer makes mistakes and that could result in discipline. That could lead to our officers' names being published or made public. Is that necessary? No. What about serious misconduct? Serious misconduct, yes. Once they, if they get terminated, then that's, that would become record after the officer exhausts his grievance process. But there's a lot of times that, you know, Shopo, we don't condone bad behavior. There's a lot of cases that we don't represent. For one, we don't represent criminal cases. Once the officer does something criminally, he has to take care of that himself in the, in the court system. There's a lot of officers that do administrative um, wrong or, and there are, you know, bad ones. And there's a lot of officers probably going through the termination process at this moment. Shoko doesn't always grieve um, an officer's wrongdoing. If he's wrong, he's wrong. We won't spend money on an officer knowing that we're going to lose an officer is basically wrong. So that's what the public needs to know also. We don't fight for every officer. If the officer is wrong, basically he's going to face the consequences with the discipline on his own. There are some who say that what happened uh, in Minneapolis, the release of those officers' names, wouldn't happen here because of our laws. No, they would. When you think about it, they all got arrested. Everything would be public record. What do you say to people who just want more transparency for government workers, whether you're a police officer or a janitor or a teacher? Well, I think with us, I think it's not fair because once you put our names into the paper, it's like the person is proven guilty, is guilty until proven innocent. You know what I mean? So why put it's a, it's an embarrassment for the families of the officer? Um, it could be dangerous too, and we had retaliation on our office, officers before. Let's talk about the difficulty of speaking up when a good cop sees bad behavior, whether it's his partner or his boss, and uh, feels he needs to say something. You know, there there's that. Code of silence, the wall of silence, you know, that uh, we hear about. Well, I, I think that that kind of, um, that generation has passed. I mean, we've seen it already where Chief Ballard handed over names of some officers that were involved with that tort, you know, the um, urinal licking one? Yes. So that was generated by an officer. So I think that those types of actions that, that that people think about, I don't think it exists today. I think our officers are smarter. They're, they know the consequences, and they are speaking up. And do you think there are enough protections for officers like that who are going to say, I'm not going to stand for this? I think normally the, I think the public thinks that there's a lot of retaliation that gets a whistleblower. That, that basically, that's what it is. And... No, I, I think that's in the movies. I don't. We don't see it here in Hawaii. Maybe it might happen in other departments on the mainland, but it's just a different culture here. And you know, we are the officers are a lot. You know, likely to say something in like in the past. Well, we just had this major scandal with our police chief, former Chief Kealoha, and his wife, and the concern that people had that there was a misuse of power. And someone should have said something in that elite force. I think, I think that whole thing had a lot of people duped, including myself, because there was one. You know, we all knew a certain story, but when they actually came out in federal court, it was totally different from what certainly you know, a bunch of us thought we knew. So that's a that's, that's something different. I think you know, 
however they pulled it off, everybody was, I think they were duped of uh, the stories that was going on and how everything was happening. That the, but you felt what, betrayed by the chief? I think by the, the you know, basically um, his wife. We were under a certain impression and, you know, when everything finally came out, you know, it was something different that we thought we knew. And, we, you know, it turned out totally different. Everybody, even the administrators and probably the police commission, were probably on the same page as a bunch of the people there kind of thought they knew stuff about what was happening with that case. And let's talk about the police commission for a second, uh, because there are calls for more transparency uh, and more authority over, you know, what the uh, chief in the department can or can't do. And we did have two high-profile members step down because they felt that that wasn't going to happen. My opinion with the police commission that they, they have a job to do. It's unfortunate that the Loretto and um, the judge... Judge Levinson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, stepped down. Um, but I believe the two new appointees were, were familiar with Doug. I never really met the judge Broderick yet. Oh, you're talking about uh, the uh, appointment the of... Ones. Yeah, the, rec- the, the nomination of uh, Doug Chin, former attorney general, and Mike Broderick. Yes. So I think they're, you know, we just got to wait and see how that turns out. But we would like to have the mayor ask us on our opinion also on the, his selection of the two individuals that he appointed. You know, it would be nice to have somebody on the board that know what our officers go through every day. Well, there are some and people... That think that Shopo has too much power. Politically, we endorse our candidates that we believe that can help our, our members. But as far as too much power, I don't think so. I think um, we're just representing our members, and the, the laws are in place right now, and we're just following what we what we have to do, whether it be uh, the 92F. The 92F or, is? Is the release of our officer's name that's in place now. The call for putting a pause on those neck restraints, where does Shopo sit with that? It's sad anytime they take a tool or a technique away from our officers. But I think on the road-wise, I, I, I don't know what the stats are, but I don't know if it's re- how many officers actually use it. I know our receiving this probably uses it. Um, we're trying to get the stats on that now because our officers that work that intake our prisoners, they have no weapons. They have no tools. They just... Basically, it's just them. So I think uh, as far as stuff on the road, I, I don't know. I kind of We're trying to figure out how many people actually used it. Um, I kind of heard there was like five. Five in the five, past year? or Yeah, something like that. So, you know, it depends. I think we got so many other tools that we have, have on, on our belt, and we have options to use that. It's, it takes a certain situation for our officers up close and personal to actually use that technique. You mentioned that you will be meeting with the House Speaker Scott Psyche later today. Yes, so they called. I, we sent the opposition letter last week, and I guess that's the reason why he's calling to talk. So opposition to the bill. We just to the bill. He probably wants to see our talk to us in person and see why we're opposing that HB. And then that would give us a time to explain our side, too. Do you feel, though, that maybe Shopo needs to give in some areas, just given the climate? I think with, with the, the job that we do, I, I think how the law is right now, it, it protects our officers from anything. You know, what, what other job can you do when you're not working, you can get fired? We can. We abide by the standards of conduct uh, for our department, and that's 24-7. Officers have been fired for conduct off-duty. We are just coming off of uh, a terrible situation where we had two of our officers killed in the line of duty, and it was someone who was suffering from, I think, some mental illness, which goes back to Ballard's call for having more money go toward that. How can six months ago our officers were hailed as heroes because of that incident that happened near Diamond Head. And then now we're going through stuff that uh, we're getting vilified by the public or the small vocal minority about our conduct. It it, it just, you know, to me, this is the the small vocal minority, especially in Hawaii. We have nothing to do with what happened in the mainland. We don't condone what happened in the mainland. 
but it's just Hawaii. It's a different culture. Um, our police department is different from any other department in the nation. We don't understand why all of a sudden these politicians need to react to what's happening on the minute when it doesn't affect us. We don't see that discrimination here. We're hoping that we still have the respect like from the public like we do. And I, and I still see it. It's that the people that support us, they're not going out marching. Nobody's marching for us, but we know that they still support us because we still get the waves, we still get the thank yous as we work every day. But it's just that the sad part is everybody's bending to these vocal minorities and putting us in a position that, you know, we don't deserve. Lutu also believes the calls to defund police aren't helping recruitment. As we heard from Chief Ballard, the police force is said to be facing a shortage of more than 300 officers. Lutu wants to thank the community for its support in the past as well as its recent generosity uh, following the shooting of Officer Tiffany Enriquez and Kaliki Kalama. The public responded with an outpouring of more than $400,000 for the children of those two officers killed at Diamond Head. The community just learned also this weekend that the 34-year-old widow of slain Officer Kalama uh, Kaohinani Kalama died on Saturday from an undisclosed illness. She leaves behind the couple's 14-year-old son. Officer Enriquez, who was a single mother, leaves behind three daughters. Shopo will split the donations between the two families. And now it's time to take a look across the globe as one of India's biggest cities returns to lockdown after the country recently relaxed its coronavirus restrictions. Plus, a cathedral in Peru adorns its walls with thousands of photographs of the country's COVID-19 victims for a silent mass. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Monday the 15th of June. I'm Nick Miles. One of India's biggest cities returns to lockdown. Why a cathedral in Peru has been filled with photos and the cheering cafe owners of Paris. Officials in the South Indian state of Tamil Nadu have announced a new lockdown in the capital, Chennai, and some neighbouring areas as they struggle to contain the coronavirus. The 12-day lockdown will start on Friday. The chief minister of Delhi, where a surge in infections is overwhelming health services, has ruled out reimposing a general lockdown there. Here's Jill McGivering. Announcing the new lockdown, Tamil Nadu's chief minister made a plea for people not to leave their homes unless they really needed to. Most transport will be banned. Only essential food shops and services will stay open and on a limited basis. This reimposition of a fresh general lockdown, while most of India is emerging from restrictions, shows the scale of the crisis. Tamil Nadu is one of the worst-hit states and most of its cases are in Chennai. New restrictions are being introduced in 10 more neighbourhoods in the Chinese capital, Beijing, to try to contain an outbreak linked to a major wholesale food market. A local official said new cases had been found in a second market in the district of Haidian. He said the market and nearby schools would be closed. Stephen McDonnell is in Beijing. The coming days will really show how well they've been able to control this outbreak in Beijing and whether or not... They actually have to consider locking down this huge city of 20 million people. In South America, an archbishop in Peru has filled his cathedral in the capital, Lima, with thousands of photographs of COVID-19 victims. When staff ran out of space, they covered the bases of the building's columns too. The Archbishop of Lima, Carlos Castillo, also broadcast a message during a mass sharply criticising the country's health system. He said it was based on egotism and business and not on mercy and solidarity with the people. He warned that yet more people faced death by starvation as a result of the economic impact of the crisis on Peru's poor. Regional leaders in neighbouring Bolivia are calling on the government to reimpose a nationwide lockdown after the highest daily increase in infections. Leonardo Rocha reports. The rise in the number of cases follows the easing of quarantine measures in some regions less affected by the disease until now, including Bolivia's largest city, La Paz. Nearly 18,000 people have been diagnosed with coronavirus in the country, and 600 have died. In some areas, the health system is said to have collapsed. Some patients are being taken to empty hotels for treatment. There's increasing international concern about the failure of Latin American countries to contain the spread of the disease. Border controls have been lifted across much of Europe today, easing three months of restrictions. Greece says it will allow flights in from China and South Korea, but Spain is closed to most tourists until next week. Here's Gavin Lee. 
Belgium, Croatia, Switzerland and Germany fully open their internal borders today. The traffic police and officials that have enforced the restrictions will disappear. In France, the borders were reopened at midnight, but those travelling from Spain and the UK still face a two-week isolation period. Norway, Finland and Denmark are allowing unrestricted travel for a select number of countries, but not neighbouring Sweden, because they say it has a comparatively high death rate. Portugal and Spain will also keep the border between them closed for another two weeks. Well, Gavin mentioned France there. In Paris, people are now allowed to eat indoors in cafes and restaurants again. This was sooner than expected and was announced by President Macron on Sunday. While restaurants across most of France were allowed to open early this month, those in and around the capital, where rates of COVID-19 remained high, had to serve people outside. Hugh Schofield is in Paris. Well, everyone's a lot happier than they were because we can go out and enjoy cafes and restaurants fully now. Um, It definitely feels like we've reached a line in this story and life is not back to normal but it's back to some kind of regular ordinariness and a lot of the most in, in sort of intrusive changes have, have disappeared. Schools will go back completely in a few days time and, and will be obligatory not voluntary. All these are signs that there is a return to sort of normal functioning life. Public health officials in Norway are halting the rollout of a coronavirus mobile phone app after criticisms over data protection. The Health Institute said it would delete all the information collected so far, but warned that the move would weaken the country's preparation. Around one and a half million had downloaded it in the first week of its launch in April, more than a quarter of the population. And that was the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Aloha Air Cargo, committed to connecting the Hawaiian Islands, continuing to provide inter-island shipping and cargo services during these unsettled times. Learn more at alohaaircargo.com. A new phrase entered the mainstream consciousness this week, and it's become a rallying cry, a campaign slogan, and the must-answer question for politicians. Do you support defunding the police. You say abolish the police because we mean abolish the police. Are you for defunding the police? How are you defining defund the police? Don't miss this week's On the Media from WNYC. This evening at 7, following The Body Show. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, now offering distance EMBA in travel industry management starting this fall. Scheidler.hawaii.edu. Civil Beat has a story about the proposed cuts at Honolulu's only daily newspaper, the Honolulu Star Advertiser. It's the focus of our reality check today with reporter Christina Jedra. Good morning, Christina. Hi, Catherine. It's always hard when journalists have to write stories about other journalists. It's tough, yeah. The, we always feel like the more reporters, the better. And uh, we got some bad news out of the Honolulu Star Advertiser last week. Uh, management told employees that it intends to lay off half of the union news staff, which is a very big deal. Um, it's 31 employees that are on the chopping block, 15 of their 34 reporters. That includes their health reporter, Kristen Concilio, and um, two popular columnists, including Lee Cataluna. Um, it's it's going to have a, a devastating impact on news coverage in the state. When I saw the list of names, I had to gulp because, you know, there's so many veteran reporters there, really solid, solid journalists. Absolutely. I mean, decades of experience um, when you add it all up, um, and it, it will possibly be a huge loss. I do want to say it's not a done deal yet, according to the newsroom union. They are trying to negotiate with management to prevent this from going through. Um, but so far, I haven't heard any update from them Um you know, they, they said they've been offering to management that we can do furloughs or other cost-cutting me- measures, but um, 
this is what uh, management has presented. So um, as of the end of the month, um, a lot of people could be losing their jobs. It was interesting because in yesterday's paper, I saw that uh, they took out a full-page ad. Uh, the, the paper did in its own paper. <laughs> Yeah, I think uh, the union's trying to raise some awareness, and they have said they've gotten a wave of community support. And actually, just this morning, um, I got a copy of a letter from three former Hawaii governors, um, former governors Neil Abercrombie, Ben Cayetano, and John Wahee, um, expressing their support for the newsroom and asking the publisher not to go forward with these cuts. Um, they said it would be a very a drastic move that could doom the newspaper, in their words. And I know, you know, there are hopes that, uh, you know, there will be some, you know, effort to save the paper either by way, by way of a sale uh, to, you know, local folks. But, uh, you know, so far that's not materialized. I haven't heard anything uh, official on that. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, you know, if these cuts go forward, um, it <sighs> We'll still have a newspaper in Honolulu, but it won't be the same. It'll be likely thinner, um, and the coverage won't be as strong. When you have half as many reporters, um, it means that there's fewer people to cover public meetings from neighborhood boards to city council meetings to the legislature, and the reporters that are left behind are really stretched thin, and they're just trying to do the work of recording the news of the day and don't necessarily have time to file public records requests and um, ask deeper questions and do the work of accountability journalism and investigative journalism that we all kind of got in the, this business to do. Um, it makes it so much harder when you're doing the job of five people instead of one. You know, and I we saw how they moved to eliminate the... Uh the paper on Saturday, and that just kills me because I, I always go out looking for the paper in the driveway, and then I have to remember, oh, it's Saturday. It's all online. Right. There's been these incremental cuts along the way. I mean, they've lost staff going back for years, and um, the coronavirus has you know hit the paper like any other business. Um, the advertising has really dried up. When I spoke to the publisher, Dennis Francis, a couple weeks ago, he said they've lost like 40 to 60 percent of their advertisers. You know, all those businesses that we hear about that are struggling, there's no need to, to put an ad in the paper right now. Um, and so that, that really impacts their ability to move forward. Right. So if the grocery stores aren't buying ads, um, this is the result. You, you don't get uh, much news. You get a thin of paper and layoffs. Yeah, it has a direct impact. And they did get um, the paycheck, paycheck Protection Program money for eight weeks. But, of course, that was only temporary. And according to the union, that help ran out last week. So this is where we are. And so basically we have to wait and see uh, what happens then with the talks between the union and management. Yeah, um, you know, they're hoping for the best. They're hoping the cuts don't go forward. Um, the union is asking the community to call and email Dennis Francis, the publisher, and encourage him, um, you know, not to go forward with this. Um, you know, it, it, I just want to reiterate, it really does impact the whole community um, when we have fewer reporters keeping an eye on things. Um, it it cuts like this cripple a newsroom's ability to, to do the important work of holding powerful people accountable. And we were talking earlier, and, and, you know, we may be competitors, but we're all journalists, all, I think, looking for the facts and trying to, to serve the community. So it's hard when, uh, when the numbers go down like that. Absolutely. We, at Civil Beat, and I think probably at HPR too, we want as many reporters in town as possible. We we work, um, you know, collaboratively, collaboratively, and we work off each other's work. And um, the more reporting, the better. We want to keep the public informed. So, um, you know, we'll just have to see how, how these cuts go forward. All right. Well, thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check. Read her full story at civilbeat.org.
Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Zippy's Restaurants, offering a limited takeout menu. Online ordering at zippies.com or by downloading the app. Hi, this is Catherine Cruz. Every week on The Conversation, we bring you insights on the COVID-19 crisis from leaders across the state, like Maui County Mayor Mike Victorino. Right now, things are in good shape. We want to make sure it stays that way. Kauai Mayor Derek Kawakami. It's going to require a tremendous amount of self-discipline, self-governance, and integrity from all of our community members because government just cannot be babysitters. And Hawaii Island Mayor Harry Kim. I made it clear to everybody, do not ever slow down when things slow down like this. This is when we ramp up. The conversation keeps you connected and informed in this crucial time. Tune in weekdays at 11 a.m. on HPR One or stream us anytime on the HPR mobile app. the globe, travel restrictions have left many stranded in places far away from home. Hawaii's no different. HBR's Ku'uvehi Hiraishi joins us live this morning to talk about a group of Pacific Islanders who have been in limbo for months. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, Catherine. Yes, unfortunately, uh, the Marshall Islands, so we know the Marshall Islands is among only a few countries uh, left in the world that are, uh, you know, it's COVID-free, COVID-19 free. And uh, the government is saying this is due in part to a strict travel ban that's been in place since early March. So March 8th, uh, the government decided to, you know, let's not risk anything. They've already been working on addressing the dengue outbreak, but also uh, measles, as we remember, that also hit American Samoa really hard. And so when the pandemic came <laughs> through, they were like, OK, we're not we're not taking any chances. Uh, shut down all incoming travel, including citizens who are traveling abroad. So here in Hawaii, we have about uh, a little over 200 stranded Marshallese citizens across uh, Hawaii right now, staying with most, staying with friends and family. Um, and we got in touch with one, uh, his name is Kawa Jatois, and he is uh, from Ibai. And so he came here, like many uh, from our Kofa countries, to uh, seek medical treatment, right, at the facilities here for his father-in-law, who's a diabetic. So in kind of asking him, you know, he was planning to be here two weeks, get the procedure done, go back home. Very common, you know, experience for a lot of these uh, guys. But uh, things went a little different when he got to the airport. Was supposed to leave after that, after um, two weeks. Was not given the, um, a warning that would be the day that the flight will be suspended the uh. United Airlines from going back to the Marshall Islands. So we went to the airport and then found out that you know, the flight was canceled and we were told that um, we would be advised or informed of the next uh, available flight. So that was March 8th, right? <laughs> and it's now been more than three months. The initial uh, ban that was put out was going to be a two-week. We'll see how it goes. And it just continued to be extended. So he's actually still here and getting ready right now. The ban is set to expire on July 5th. But, you know, that we don't know if that's actually going to be the case, if he's going to get to return after that. Um, but he, like I said, is one of about 200 here in Hawaii, but they also have, I think the total is 326 Marshallese citizens, uh, also in Guam, uh, U.S., uh, Philippines, and uh, Federated States of Micronesia. So the government right now is trying to figure out how do we get the procedures in place to bring them back, especially when they're coming from countries uh, like our guests, for the, uh, example, the United States, where there's high rates of COVID-19 in the Pacific Islander communities. So right now, my understanding is that uh, they want to quarantine the stranded citizens here in Honolulu at a specific location, so in a, a facility that's made for quarantining, and have them there for two weeks before getting on the plane. Then once they get uh, back to the Republic of the Marshall Islands, they'll quarantine for another two weeks, 
testing throughout that process before they get released. So they'll be in a, in a bubble, so to speak, <laughs> right? Basically. Yes, for for uh, the next month or so. So uh, Jatois, who we spoke to, he's actually got his, his wife and his three children back home. He speaks to them every day. He also owns a, a quarry business where he does, uh, you know, sand and aggregate for construction material. So he's lucky that he's, his uh, staff has been able to take on those responsibilities for the past three months. Uh, but it was interesting when I asked him how he felt about being, quote unquote, stranded uh, because he somewhat gave off this sense. He had a sense of kuleana or duty to to kind of sacrifice on behalf of his, his family back home. I kept telling myself that uh, it's, it's better to be safe than sorry. That's what kept me um, going. Every day is like thinking of whether... I don't know if I have the fires or not. I take it back home and then infect <laughs> the whole population or... <laughs> and that is, that is the worry. Uh, the Marshallese government has uh, provided these citizens with some, or some of these citizens, I should say, uh, with some financial relief, a one-time $500 payment to kind of get them through. Obviously, three months, uh, it's not a lot. Uh, so the local community has actually uh, chipped in. We have a Marshallese Community Organization of Hawaii, a fairly new organization. Uh, we spoke to Kelly Boken, who's uh, one of the organization's founders, uh, who says, um, you know, they did fo- food drives, but also prepared a GoFundMe page to try to get uh, some of these stranded citizens some extra cash while they're here to get them through. Uh, but they are continuing to accept donations if people would like to help. Um, but another thing that's going on that the, the this organization is working on is addressing the needs or the health care needs of the local Marshallese population. As we know, according to the Department of Health, uh, Pacific Islanders are seeing a disproportionately high rate of COVID-19 here in Hawaii, right? They represent 14% uh, of the cases, but only 4% of the population here. Uh, so the organization's been translating a lot of the Department of Health's material, uh, COVID-19 material, for outreach into Marshallese to help get to those critical communities. So here's uh, Boken kind of talking about those efforts. As community, we try to educate people on how to be safe from that uh, COVID-19. And it does concern me. We're very fortunate that in Hawaii, like not in Hawaii, but on Oahu, we don't have any confirmed cases of Marshallese that are infected with that COVID-19. But on some part of the mainland, I know it's hitting them very badly. So it does, it does concern me a lot. So we, we would like to encourage our, you know, our people to, to stay focused. And that's really the effort right now locally, um, but continued outreach efforts to the stranded uh, Marshallese are also being done. Now, he made reference to Marshallese on the mainland, and yes. I know I did talk to folks uh, in Arkansas uh, because they have, I think, like 8,000 Marshallese <laughs> you know, working in a chicken Tyson plant over chick, there, yes. and uh, they just recently did a, a drive uh, uh, with food, offering the community their food, and also testing for COVID-19. Uh, and then also uh, use it as an opportunity to outreach for the census. Oh, yes. So it, it was a really interesting kind of, um, uh, kind of uh, slice of life in Arkansas affecting the Pacific Island uh, community. And I, th- I believe they've just, uh, I've seen reports where they've uh, completed uh, testing of a, a number of the workers there at the plant because they wow. don't want to have to shut down the plant. They haven't yet in Arkansas, from what I understand. And uh, they came back with a number of uh, uh, positives uh, with only one, I think, uh, showing signs of symptoms. So it's all very interesting. But they're really trying to be proactive and uh, make sure that uh, their community has the information that they need. I think, and that's going on here as well. I think the community's very tight-knit community. I spoke to Isabella Silk, uh, the Consul General um, for the Republic of the Marshall Islands here in Honolulu. And she had mentioned, you know, when for families that were stranded who did not have family or friends here, other Marshallese families jumped in and said, you can, you know, we have a, a little place where you can stay at our place or we can help you financially. And I think <coughs> when we think about um, the solutions or the way they're going to get through this, it really is in, you know, being there for each other and sticking together. And I should probably uh, mention, or you should let our listeners know if they don't already, a lot of times the uh, Micronesians come here to Hawaii for medical treatment uh, because of the uh, COFA, the Compact right. Free Association, and the U.S. did the testing there on Bikini Island, and they allow uh, 
their residents, uh, their citizens to come to Hawaii. And a lot of them, are, I think, are seen at Tripler, I think. You're right. You've got you've got Kwajalein too, right, in the Republic of the Marshall Islands. So I do know I was reported reported by the Marshall Islands Journal this morning uh, that nine individuals from Pompeii, uh, cit- stranded citizens, were actually returned uh, to the Republic of the Marshall Islands and starting that process that uh, those in Honolulu hope to uh, do as well. All right. Well, thanks so much. Mahalo. We've been talking to HBR's Kuvehi Hiraishi, talking about the stranded Marshallese here in Hawaii who want nothing better than to return home. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Honolulu Habitat for Humanity, dedicated to the idea that everyone should have a decent place to live and committed to bringing people together to build homes. HonoluluHabitat.org As we look to opening up inner island travel and more stores and restaurants throughout the islands, how can we keep everyone safe, both customers and workers alike? I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Join me today on The Body Show. We'll talk about the logistics of temperature screening, contact tracing, and more. That's today at 6.30 on The Body Show. That is it for today. Tomorrow, we gather some garden experts around the table to take your questions. Many people have turned to growing their own vegetables and fruit as this pandemic has thrown the spotlight on our vulnerability when it comes to food security and shipments. Do you have a garden tale to tell? Got a green thumb or not? Call our talk back line, 808-792-8217. Tweet us at HI Conversation or head to our Facebook page. And remember, all of our shows are archived. Find them on the conversation page at hawaiipublicradio.org. I'm Catherine Cruz. We will be back tomorrow with more of the conversation.